This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. For those of you who are over 60, 50. So welcome to the final ramble of the, uh, the series. I've been unpacking uh, some of the reflections I gave voice to in my funeral oration at, uh, at Adhisthana in the ceremony for, for Sangharakshita. And uh, I said some things there in very brief form that I think have much more depth to them than I was able to put in a 15-minute slot. So I've been trying to explore that a little bit over the last couple of days, and I'll conclude that tonight. I've been especially uh, really looking at the the implications of a a sort of double response to Sangrakshita, a response to him as uh, an overwhelmingly... uh, uh, effective Dhamma teacher and uh, former of Sangha, uh, setting out of a way that is, it seems, uh, applicable all over the world. There's uh, nowhere yet we found where it doesn't really work. It seems to apply to the modern world everywhere in a rather unique way so far. Mm-hmm. Although many are beginning to say, well, Sangharakshita was there before us and we realise we must go that way too. But at the same time, we know that uh, there are various uh, conundrums and paradoxes and difficulties in Sangharakshita's life that some people have found very difficult to come to terms with. And I certainly did myself for a while. Um, so I've been trying to reflect in these talks on uh, uh, what that means. You know, if you see these things that are difficult for you, does that mean that the rest of it is rubbish? Or if you see this, the, the, the wonderful thing, does it mean that uh, you, know, you, you, you just ignore what is more problematic? And I've been suggesting, I hope, a way of understanding this that uh, is realistic and uh, that actually relates to you and me. And I've been talking about my own experience as a Dharma practitioner and uh, as a, a leader and a teacher and quite a big influence in our the small world of our movement. Um, I've, I've been speaking about, you know, during this 40th anniversary year, reflecting on what I was like 40 years ago, uh, so inspired. And I think I said yesterday, uh, I'm no more inspired than I was then, and no less inspired, if you see what I mean. Just that the inspiration has got more ample and more grounded in many ways. But it's the same inspiration, and I think what I saw then is what I see now. And uh, the experience that I had then of the Dhamma is the experience that I have now. I'm just more at ease with it and more able to uh, ground it in my experience. So yes, there was that, but I was so naive. And uh, uh, my own pride and uh, self-interest was mixed up in my, my activity for the Dhamma, my work for the Dhamma. And uh, as a consequence, I did things that 
put people off the Dhamma. I'm, the thing I most regret is that things I've done or said have meant people didn't uh, connect with Tri Ratna. Uh, I hope they connected somewhere with the Dhamma, but they didn't through us and through me. Um, and that, you know, some things I've thought and said and uh, done have, um, have uh, caused people harm, uh, caused people pain. So one has to sort of come to some assessment of that. You know, there's this great inspiration, this very strong desire to, to serve the Dhamma and to uh, bring it to others. And at the same time, a rather raw and unfinished uh, personality. So how is one to, to deal with that? Um, well, I suppose one just has to accept, in retrospect, that that was the case, and probably, to some extent, still is. Um, I still make mistakes that um, people um, are harmed by, or at least don't like, at the very least. Uh, so does that really mean that we should just wait until we're the finished product? That would be the temptation, do you see what I mean? To say that, okay, uh, young Sabuti, you're extremely inspired, that's wonderful. Now, go away for 45 years, probably a bit more, and get yourself um, sorted out so that you're perfect. And then you can uh, uh, spread the Dhamma. Um, well, I think, I hope, brothers and sisters, that you will say, no, Sabuti, no, Sabuti, because if you'd done that, we wouldn't be here, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Um, that's the plain fact of it, that those rough and ready men and women of uh, 40, 50 years ago who made up the, 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 the Western Buddhist order, as it was at that time, led by this extraordinary genius, Sangharakshita, with his... Uh, own uh, workings out still going on, uh, we formed this, uh, we together formed this thing that I think many of you have uh, come to in deep appreciation and uh, are yourselves now participating in. I, th I think this is something we need to sort of uh, recognise quite clearly that you cannot uh, leap fully formed as a Buddha. It's not possible. Uh, you, you cannot just uh, stay hidden until you are finished. Because as soon as you start to enter into interaction with the world, all the distance between your inspiration and your conditioned reality shows up, if you see what I mean. It's exposed. So... Uh, I'm not trying to excuse, by the way. I'm not trying to lessen my regret for things that I've done that have, have, that have hurt. And I'm sure Sangharakshita wouldn't want to do that. And in fact, he, he made that very clear. Um, <clears throat> so please don't misunderstand me. But uh, I'm trying to explain a, a sort of principle that's not just to do with me, but it's to do with you. Uh, you're probably in many ways better than me. I don't know. And certainly the context is more, more mature so you're less likely to make the sort of mistakes that we made back then. Uh, the times are different and, well, our, our, our order has people in it who've been around, like me, for 45 years and who have made some progress on the path and come to some deeper understanding of themselves. So it's, the whole thing is much more mature. But still, it will go on. You will make mistakes. It's 
sorry, I'm not trying to insult you, but it's the truth. You will do things that, uh, in some cases, put people off. You'll do things that hurt people. You'll do things that, even sometimes without your realising it, uh, um, cause them pain that um, may affect them quite strongly. I hope you don't, but uh, don't be surprised if you do. Regret it deeply if you realise that you've done it, but uh, don't stop. Uh, one has to engage in the practice of the Dhamma and engage especially in an active Sangha in order to discover yourself. It's through my participation in the Sangha, it's through my work to, to, you know, as one of those who set up this centre, that I've come to a better understanding of my own conditioned character. I spoke yesterday of, uh, of character as a sort of given uh, that is uh, largely the result of uh, pre-existing conditions in Buddhist terms coming from a previous life. Uh, some of them, and from the, 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 the cultural circumstances, the economic circumstances, social circumstances in which you're born, the genetic material that you have. It's a sort of given that you're not directly responsible for, but your failure to really understand it and your failure to disentangle that from your practice of the Dhamma and your practice of, uh, uh, um, of the spreading of the Dhamma leads to, to problems. And uh, the way in which you discover your character is in action. You discover who you are and what you are in your interaction with others. Uh, and you discover it through making mistakes. Uh, that is why Sangha is so important. Sangha is the arena, well, it's one aspect of it, it's the arena within which you discover yourself because you're coming up against other characters, other individuals who have their own um, unconsciousness about their own character and conditioning. And together you, uh, you come to discover who you really are. Uh, that is what your given is, what your conditioned given is. So uh, whilst of course, yes, again I stress, I'm not trying to justify or excuse I'm trying to explain and suggest that it's a bit inevitable. I hope that as the years go by, as the generations go by, a really mature Buddhist movement uh, emerges in which uh, it's much easier and quicker to discover yourself. It's much easier now than it was when I started out. I was the chairman of the only centre in the Triratna at the age of... 25 and one month, 26 and one month. Uh, uh, and uh, my goodness, was I naive. Um, you're nodding, is it? Yes. <laughs> Only teasing. Sorry. <laughs> but you're right. <laughs> I was extremely naive. And, um, um, uh, and also, you know, not able to disentangle my inspiration from my pride, from my self-attachment. Uh, and uh, as a result of working with old codgers like David Mitra over there and others, I've, we came to understand more about ourselves and our own character and about each other too. Uh, uh, we came to discover ourselves much more sort of uh, uh, um, deeply and to accept ourselves much more fully. 
And I think one of the the the, the, uh, um, the things about the, the the movement today, and I, I feel it's especially at the LBC, that it's able to encompass a broader and broader range of character, in the sense that I was talking of it yesterday, not just of cultural conditioning and nationality and, and ethnicity and so forth, but of, of character in the broadest sense. I, I think an ideal Sangha is able to take in uh, anybody who comes to it, if you see what I mean, and, and to uh, be able to allow them to discover their, their conditioned character. It will never be perfect, and it will always be having to expand its boundaries. Uh, and it'll always be difficult for some people. And I just hope that people do stick at it and have confidence that the Sangha uh, as, as a whole uh, is flexible enough to take in a, ra a larger and wider range of character in the sense of the given, conditioned given. And it's a, a cause of great, great joy to me coming to this centre uh, at this point, uh, seeing it, well... In, in the phrase of the times, so diverse. It wasn't like that in the beginning. It really wasn't like that. It was almost exclusively white, middle-class, educated, uh, um, uh, a lot more men than women, for instance. Um, and we've been able, because of the, the vision that Bante gave us, we've been able to expand and... Uh, provide room, at least room for people to, to winkle themselves in and slowly create the room for themselves. So uh, this, this is for me, um, you know, as one of those who work pretty hard to set this place up, a, 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 one of the greatest uh, causes of joy to see that you, in, in all your richness and diversity, have found yourselves at least beginning to be at home. I, I, I heard one of the talks with Sanjay there at the, um, at the weekend uh, talking about himself as a born in, in uh, Bethnal Green of Indian and English parentage and not really finding himself at home anywhere until he came in contact with the movement. It's hearing things that, like that that make me feel, oh well, I didn't do so badly. Uh, uh, you know, not me alone, but we didn't do so badly. Uh, so, what uh, I think we need to, to recognise is that it's Sangha, it's interaction with Sangha, and Sangha isn't just a passive thing. Sangha is active, it's trying to work in the world, it's trying to affect the world. If it's closed, it's just going to be become a sort of uh, uh, a group in which um, a limited range of characters are... Um, sort of finding some sort of symbiosis together. The Sangha, by definition, has to be expansive and opening up more and more broadly. Uh, without that, I think uh, a, 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 a spiritual life is going to be extremely difficult. One will be refining upon one's own um, uh, idiosyncrasies, as it were, and uh, spiritual progress will be a sort of uh, uh, self-delusion, and, and I've seen it, I've seen it, not only have I seen it, I've done it at times, uh, where you think you're making real progress, but you're just avoiding uh, uh, your, your lack of understanding of your own conditioning. This has been termed even uh, by psychotherapists working in this world as spiritual bypass. 
you don't actually deal with your basic conditioning and its, uh, its effects. And a, a, a genuine, a true Sangha is uh, bringing people into the sort of interaction, sometimes quite painful, um, which leads you to understand yourself better and to understand others better and to open up your, your range, as it were. So, uh, <clears throat> I th see the whole issue with Bhante in the same way, if you see what I mean. I think that he grew during his time as a teacher. It's hard for me to say that because he started off over my horizon, if you see what I mean. He was always bigger than me. But I, I think I can say from my, you know, ant-like perspective that the elephant grew a bit. Um, <laughs> Um, and I, you know, he wasn't the sort of person to talk about that kind of thing. But you know, it, it, it certainly appeared like that, that he himself changed and grew. And his, his change and growth was somehow intimately interconnected with the growth and change of the movement. They were almost identical in a certain way. Um, and I think it's very important that we sort of understand this about each other, about ourselves, and even about our teachers. You will not find, I'm sure you already realise this, any perfect teachers here at the LBC. They're pretty nearly perfect. I have to say that because they'll give me flowers later. Um, <laughs> but uh, you won't find perfect teachers here. And you won't find anybody who pretends they're perfect. Bante never, ever, ever pretended he was perfect. He would never talk about his attainment. Um, when he was asked, are you a stream entrant? He merely said, it's important to have confidence in your teacher. Uh, and, but that confidence cannot be based, this is me talking now, your confidence cannot be based upon some sort of abstract uh, notion of perfection. It has to be based on your own experience uh, and what you get. So, yes, I think um, uh, it's, it's a good enough movement. Uh, and we, the early generation, have been good enough order members and Bante has been a good enough teacher, even maybe more than good enough. And uh, probably we can't expect much more than that. Good enough means that it's growing and that it will bring you to the path. A very good poem by Bante on this theme uh, about the, uh, being given a record collection and I, I should have quoted it to you, it's such a, a lovely poem, but uh, an order member gave him his record collection uh, with the words, I'm sorry, it's not a very good one. And uh, so Bante's poem says, you know, though your record collection is, uh, is not complete, it is good enough to hear uh, the, 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 the classics. And it goes on like that, and it ends with, though your teacher is, is, is not fully enlightened, he's good enough to show you the path. So... Uh, uh, we we, we uh, need to understand a good enough movement, good enough teachers, uh, which does not is not a belittling way of thinking. Good enough because they're connected to the Dhamma, because the Dhamma lives in them. So uh, I want to move on now to sort of applying that a bit more to uh, what Sangharakshita was, in a sense what he is. Um, and how we can understand him, um, or at least get a, a bit, bit more of an understanding of him. Now he's gone, how are we to kind of uh, think about him? 
and uh, I, I think there's some clues in some of the very last things that he uh, wrote. Uh, you know that for the last years of his life he was not able to write because his eyesight uh, had uh, deteriorated, he had macular degeneration of the eye, so his eye was distorted, so he couldn't see what he'd written. He used to make notes. Uh, I used to find that if I go to see him, he'd make notes of what he wanted to talk to me about. And he says, oh, I can't see, Sabuti, what is it that I want to talk to you about? And I couldn't read this horrendous <laughs> scrawl. Anyway, he'd usually work it out. But, um, so he used to dictate. And for the last years of his life, he dictated uh, quite a series of um, papers, usually two or three pages, which are deceptively simple because the, the medium itself dictated uh, a really simplified mode of communication. And um, uh, sometimes I would read them and think, oh yeah, I knew that. And then you think, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's something more that's in here. There's a, there's a definite punch in here in very simple ways. So uh, the last two papers he wrote, uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, were on rebirth and on the mantrayana, which is uh, really rather interesting that these were the last two things that he focused on, especially because it, it, it sort of, that when you look at his, uh, his life in the latter years, it does look as if there was a process of completion going on and that everything sort of falls into place, uh, a sort of intuitive feeling out of uh, uh, the right, the right thing to do before he goes, uh, finishing off his work. So it's quite to be remarked upon uh, that these are the two last things and one must reflect on why. So the second to last was uh, some reflections on rebirth, which is mainly saying that uh, you cannot be a Buddhist and not believe in rebirth because it's uh, so deeply embedded in uh, in, uh, in the Dhamma, in all its main phases. So for instance, uh, in the, the so-called uh, Arahat path, the, the so-called Hinayana, uh, the path consists of the movement from stream entry, uh, once returnership, non-returnership, Arahatva. And that takes uh, um, uh, a maximum of seven lives. So uh, it's, it's, uh, you can complete the path in one life, but only if there's a great deal of preparation already from previous lives. So from the outset, the, the Buddhist path is conceived of in the context of uh, limitless lives. And uh, the final stages of the path are conceived as a, a process of moving through various stages, which can take up to seven lifetimes. So he's saying that, uh, uh, you know, if, you, if you, your take on Buddhism is this, kind of more basic approach of attaining individual liberation, then uh, you can't do that without a conception of, of, of rebirth. It's even more the case with the other main branch of, uh, of, of Buddhism, the mother, other main ideal of Buddhism, which is the ideal of attaining full and perfect Buddhahood. That is uh, uh, preparing yourself to gain enlightenment in a time, in a place where there's no Dhamma, which is what uh, our Buddha, the Buddha Shakyamuni, is supposed to have done. There was no trace of the Dhamma in, uh, in the world, according to Buddhist tradition, and he took a vow to be reborn and to rediscover the path and open it up. 
So for Mahayana, Mahayanists, uh, this is the ideal. Believe it or not, if you are following the Mahayana path, you are aspiring to be a, a bodhisattva who is eventually going to become a full and perfect Buddha. And you can see that if that's your ideal, it's not going to happen before breakfast tomorrow, um, uh, or, or even breakfast in the next lifetime. It's quite a big and long process. I'll, I'll have more to say about that in a moment. Uh, so he's saying that uh, the, 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 the central ideals, the two main ways of conceiving of the ideal in, in Buddhism, both are inextricably bound up with, um, uh, with the idea of rebirth. And you cannot really conceive of uh, the Buddhist ideal without that. Uh, this is not a universally accepted uh, perspective in Western Buddhism, uh, not in Eastern Buddhism. It's universal in Eastern Buddhism, as far as I know. Um, and the Pali texts and the earliest texts attest to it. Um, so that, that's the first paper. Quite interesting. Uh, He's sort of not talked about these two perspectives for a long, long time, and has rather tended to downplay the, uh, the distinction. And in, a, in the end, they're not really distinct, but uh, uh, they are the ways in which the path is conceived. In the second paper, he, it's, it's a little less clear why he's doing it, if you see what I mean. Of course, it's interesting that he's talking about rebirth just months before his death. Uh, and, you know, he told me that he did believe in rebirth and that... He, uh, he knew he would come back. More about that later. But uh, in the second paper, the, the, the one on the Mantrayana, he says that uh, the, uh, the Bodhisattva ideal is divided into two parts or two different conceptions or two different methods, really, or two different ways. The first way is the way of the laborious uh, process of lifetime by lifetime accumulating the paramitas, the perfections that are needed to be a full and perfect Buddha. Again, I'll say more about that in a bit. So it's a, a long, slow process of effort, of working upon yourself, increasingly sustained by the uh, suprapersonal power of the bodhicitta, uh, but it's a, a long, slow, steady process, lifetime by lifetime. The other path, the mantrayana, the other division, as it were, of the, the, the Mahayana path, the Bodhisattva path, is the mantrayana. And uh, this is, uh, he says, has sometimes been referred to as magical Buddhism. Uh, I think it, it might be better to, I was suggesting in the discussion this morning, to call it alchemical Buddhism, if you see what I mean. It, it's got a slightly less easily dismissible ring to it. It's uh, uh, the Buddhism that... Uh, um, teaches that if you engage with certain mantras um, and you recite these with sufficient faith, sufficient concentration and in the right context and received in the right way from the, uh, 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 a qualified guru, uh, they can take you to enlightenment in a single lifetime. Um, and uh, he says that, uh, you know, that, that, that to some people this appeals very strongly, but not to everybody. Uh, again, I, 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 I can guess at why he said these things. He didn't explain it at all. He just spelled it out. Um, but I do have 
my own ideas about why he did it, which I'm not going to fully tell you, uh, but I might, you might understand them in what I'm saying. Uh, I think it's very, very significant what, what somebody says right at the end of their life, especially somebody as intuitively awake as that man was. A very, very strong sense of the right of the moment, if you see what I mean. A very, very strong sense of the current and the tide of things. So I think, uh, uh, you know, maybe Paramartha or somebody like that can say more about what was going on when he did it. But to me, it appears to be deeply significant that his, his last um, uh, collected thoughts were on the, on the theme of the, the Mantrayana. Um, so uh, uh, I'm going to look at Sangharakshita from each of these points of view. because so I think that helps us to understand a bit better uh, who he was and how we are to relate to him, if you see what I mean, and where we put uh, what he referred to me as the messy bits, uh, the bits that are untidy about him, um, you know, arguably more than untidy uh, in some people's eyes at least. Uh, how are we to see this, this extraordinary man who's uh, not with us anymore and uh, who has had such a huge influence upon what this movement is that we have to come to some way of thinking about him and understanding him. Uh, and, and therefore speaking about him. So I think we can look at him under each of these headings. I'm not suggesting that each of these headings should become part of our bread and butter of discussion, but I'm suggesting that they do give us some perspective on what he was, what he's given to us, and how we are to relate to him. So first of all, just thinking of him as a, as a, a teacher of the Arahat path. He never pretended to be an Arahat. Uh, he never claimed any attainment for himself. But what he did do was set out the fundamental path of the Dhamma extremely clearly, uh, in crystalline form, um, diamond-sharp form. I, I remember the, the, the sort of shock of listening to those talks on the Eightfold Path. I'd sort of dabbled around in Buddhism and read a bit of scriptures and so forth, but quite confused. Uh, Zen, bits of Tibetan, bits of Theravada. I couldn't really put it all together. And Sangharakshan just puts it in such immediate, human, uh, uh, intelligible terms that relate to me as a, a, a human being and that, know, that make me know what I've got to do. He's got that extraordinary quality of putting the, the first steps of the, of the path before you. If you like, as a teacher of the path of... Uh, individual transformation, uh, which the ultimate of which is, is arahatva, um, uh, freedom, freedom for me. Uh, and I think he's been an exceptionally brilliant teacher in this way, um, <clears throat> and boiled it all down uh, without um, distorting or uh, oversimplifying. And it, uh, what I'm particularly struck by is that it works uh, here, it works in India, where people are not these days, they're much more educated, much more sophisticated. But in the early days, they're very, very simple and uneducated. But they took on just the same Dhamma as, as we take on and took it up with just the same uh, uh, clarity uh, that they got from Bhante. There's something about his uh, understanding that is, is, is universal and sets out that basic path very, very clearly. 
some people have, have dismissed him as a teacher because of the um, uh, elements of his action that they find unskillful. Arguably, they're right. Um, I don't personally feel that at all. I feel that his understanding is much greater sometimes than his own, um, own ability to, to, to live it out. And he's pretty good. Pretty good. I, I, I've never really seen him be unkind. I've never seen him be um, inattentive. Uh, I've never seen him unmindful. Maybe he's misjudged uh, situations, but as I've already been arguing in the last two days, that's not an easy thing to do, to judge fully. Um, so, yes, you could argue that he, you know, he's, not, he's not beyond this point. You know, for instance, he's sexually active, therefore he couldn't have been uh, a this or a that or the other. Frankly, I couldn't care less. What I care is he's given me the path that I can follow in a, in a thorough, clear way. So as a, as, as a teacher of the basic path, I think he's, uh, I don't know, I won't say second to none because there are very good teachers out there, but uh, certainly for me, a unique clarity and um, uh, it, it presents the Dhamma not as a technical subject, if you see what I mean, whilst he's referring to the, the technicalities of traditional Buddhism, what he presents to you is, is something so human and immediate and direct. Someone was to be intensely grateful to him for that, uh, for setting out the path to us. Setting out a path that has created a Sangha of people who are practicing very sincerely, uh, set out by a man who never himself had the opportunity to participate in Sangha. It's one of the extraordinary things about Bhante that, um, you know, he was so, um, so you know, so um, sui generis under his own category, if you sort of mean, he didn't. He never really had uh, 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 companions on the path of an equal level to him. Maybe Lama Govinda, and of course he had his own teachers, but he never, never really participated in sangha. And yet, he was able to envision and body forth sangha in a, an extremely effective way, so that people could discover themselves in the way that I've been speaking of, and therefore together tread the path in this uh, immediate, very basic, uh, almost psychologically clear way. Um, but uh, there's more to him than that. Uh, he's a teacher of the, of the Bodhisattva path. Uh, he's uh, been able to um, uh, communicate to his disciples and em embody in the order and movement that he founded, a spirit that is beyond the personal, what in, in the Mahayana is called the bodhicitta, uh, which means, citta means uh, consciousness or awareness, uh, although it's consciousness or awareness as a dynamic phenomenon, not just as a, a blank awareness. He's been able to, uh, uh, and that, that is uh, really based in what is ultimate, a consciousness that is beyond the personal, beyond my consciousness, that I can connect with and try to live out. I think that's what I did for the last 45 years. I connected with that through Sangharakshita. He was able to communicate that to me in a, a living way and to embody it in himself in a highly effective way that enabled me to... Um, live not just this sort of basic path of individual effort, 
but a path of self-transcendence, a path of uh, a living uh, out my life, not just for myself, but for, for others too. And uh, we, we know that uh, in 1957 or 8, I can't remember the year, sorry, but some, sometime around then, he took the, the Bodhisattva vow from uh, uh, one of his teachers, Dada Rinpoche, who he says he regarded as a living bodhisattva. And so he took the vow to uh, live his life, not just for his own personal uh, release from suffering, but uh, for the, the ultimate uh, um, uh, fulfillment of the entire, the entire world, of, of the entire universe, in effect. Uh, the vow to save all sentient beings is the way it's put, perhaps a little literalistically. Uh, but he took the vow to not live just for himself. And uh, this movement is the embodiment of that vow. The function of a bodhisattva, one of the functions of the bodhisattva, is to form what is called a, a gana, a, a, a community, uh, a movement, you could say, it's to form a, 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 um, a, a sangha, a, a community of people gathered around him or her who are imbued with the spirit of the bodhisattva and who are taught the practices they need to live out the bodhisattva life and who uh, come into an interaction with each other that enables the, the, the bodhicitta to arise amongst them. Uh, that is the fulfillment of his bodhisattva vow. For all his own limitations of character and circumstance, he was able to do that. Uh, and that, to me, marks him as a, as a true bodhisattva. Uh, a bodhisattva on the path somewhere, uh, somewhere way beyond where I can see, but still on the path. Uh, a bodhisattva uh, sets out on this path, uh, takes the vow, to accumulate all the necessary conditions to be a Buddha. Th this uh, image here is uh, backed by these um, two shapes, uh, well, one shape with a, another shape within it, which represents the accumulation that the Bodhisattva has been uh, gathering uh, in order to be a Buddha. So the, the, the outer uh, golden... Um, uh, shape uh, symbolizes the uh, punya sambhara, the accumulation of merit. Um, so the bodhisattva, lifetime after lifetime, perfects his activity and his mind or his, her mind um, so that gradually these, um, the merits that are accumulated uh, begin to pattern every new existence. So that, that every renewed coming into being, coming into space and time, uh, there's a greater adequacy of form to content, if you see what I mean. So that, that at every, every rebirth, the Bodhisattva, because of this accumulation of merit, creates a, 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 a body even, a mind, uh, in, in traditional language, a speech, uh, a, a communicative faculty that is more and more adequate to the task. Huh? So, uh, you know, Sangharachita spoke of himself as being 
uh, in many ways not really the right person to start a new movement, uh, that he lacked so many of the necessary qualities and talents, but he was the one to do it. Well, a bodhisattva sets out to accumulate those necessary talents and uh, qualities uh, through their skillful action, uh, uh, lifetime by lifetime, through practicing the paramitas. Um, some of you will have listened to that series, that brilliant series by Sankaraksha on the Bodhisattva ideal, where he discusses these paramitas. So you set out consciously to uh, uh, cu cultivate each of these faculties, morality, um, uh, patience, uh, etc., uh, meditation, energy, um, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, and uh, so gradually you accumulate this, uh, this sort of aura. Uh, your presentation in the world is more and more adequate to uh, the, the ideal that you're trying to promote, that you're trying to live out. You see what I mean? So that it's said that the, the bodhisattva uh, in lifetime by lifetime becomes more and more good-looking uh, because it's well known uh, that the more good-looking you are, the more seriously people you ta uh, take you. It's always been my problem. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it, it, but it's true. You know, if, if, you're, if you're both uh, uh, very handsome or very beautiful, uh, very attractive, uh, and you've got a sort of glow to you, people are going to take you more seriously. Um, that doesn't mean you should feel bad about not being like that. I certainly don't. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it ultimately, if that's what you're trying to do, is to really be an effective spread of the Dhamma, try to develop the, the, uh, the form that makes it most adequate. For instance, develop the, the faculty of learning languages so that your mind is uh, flexible enough to uh, open up to varied communication is one of the, uh, the teachings about the Bodhisattva is the, the four Pratisamvids and they're to do with these sort of accumulations of, um, uh, of, of uh, skills in that sort of way not languages specifically mentioned but you could easily include it so that the Punya Sambhara the, the radiance of the Bodhisattva's uh, merit is the uh, increasing embodiment of these uh, virtues that form uh, the world in which the Bodhisattva is, is, uh, is born, is reborn. Um, which pattern even, you might say, uh, I don't work out the, the, the biology of it, pattern the DNA, <laughs> that uh, work themselves out through that. And the Bodhisattva in, uh, in the Tibetan tradition is supposed to develop the skill to find the ideal rebirth. Um, you can take this as literally or as metaphorically as you like, that's up to you. But that's the, that, that's the, the outer aura, the, the aura that surrounds the body. Then there's a head aura, which is the jnana sambhara, uh, which, the accumulation of wisdom. So lifetime by lifetime, the bodhisattva is uh, developing pragna paramita, or jnana paramita in later tradition, uh, is accumulating the understanding of the uh, of uh, reality, the direct understanding of reality and embodying it more and more perfectly. So that by the time the last lifetime comes, the Bodhisattva has the full accumulation of merit and wisdom and is able to manifest in the world, in a world which is completely bereft of the path to salvation, the path to freedom, 
uh, which has uh, no way out. Bodhisattva is able to uh, manifest within that as a Buddha, is able to go through the process of discovering the, the, the path of liberation. And that's what this image is, it represents. It represents the end of the Bodhisattva path, that you are, through your life, your lives, accumulating all the merits and all the wisdom that's necessary uh, to help uh, beings gain liberation who have no access to freedom. You know, we can all do that in our own way, on our own level. Even in this life, we're trying to accumulate through our interaction with each other the, uh, the necessary qualities, both collectively, and I think that's one thing that we do as a community, develop those qualities. I may not have them, I certainly don't have them all, but I may have something that I contribute to the, the pool of what we all have. Uh, but through that, we're accumulating those in ourselves and... Uh, uh, next lifetime we may be able to manifest a bit better and be able to help many more beings. But even in this lifetime we can try to go to new circumstances and situations and reach out to people who haven't got the Dhamma. So many of them. Uh, and try to extend our range by living out this Bodhisattva ideal on the level that's realistic for us. So yes, Sangharakshita is a teacher of the Bodhisattva path. And he himself is a living, well, he was a living bodhisattva and is now um, a, a bodhisattva waiting to re-manifest. I'm convinced of it. And uh, will be back, as I said, as he said. Um, and uh, yes, he wasn't a perfect bodhisattva uh, because a perfect bodhisattva is a Buddha, has accumulated all the, the, the merit and jnana to manifest in a, in a, 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 a Buddha's body. He's on the way. Who knows how long? But he's on that way. And uh, we're incredibly great, uh, incredibly fortunate to have been uh, in the company of a bodhisattva of that quality and to have been, our lives to have been touched by him. I, uh, I myself deeply inspired and moved and motivated by the bodhisattva idea, but I cannot imagine having even begun to conceive of that path without my contact with him. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to have that contact because you've got contact with what his radiance, as it were, the radiance that he's left in the world, which is pretty good. It's a good enough movement. It's a good enough bodhisattva movement. But that isn't all there is to Sangharakshita. There's this other dimension uh, which is represented by the mantrayana. Um, which, as I've said, is the, the path that uh, sometimes spoken of under the heading of Vajrayana or Tantra, but uh, perhaps most simply spoken under the heading of the Mantrayana. The, the idea that certain forms of words uh, embody an energy, an energy of uh, enlightenment, an energy of transcendence, that if you receive them in the right context and... Uh, connect with them and uh, sort of take them into you or rather let them come into you can uh, uh, transform you uh, by themselves. No doubt, the more you do on the other uh, levels, the better, the more easily they'll work, the more readily they'll work. But uh, these um, mantras uh, that have been handed on 
to Sangharakshita and that he's handed on to us are his way of introducing us to this alchemical dimension of, of, of the Buddha Dhamma. This dimension of the Buddha Dhamma that cannot be conceived of in ordinary spatio-temporal terms, uh, that cannot be conceived of in terms of an ordinary kind of conditionality, uh, a, a linear conditionality, that are uh, to be conceived of in terms, well, are to be conceived of by not conceiving of them, by simply opening oneself up to them and allowing them to have that transformative effect upon one. And uh, we no longer, in, in, uh, in the, the order, for very good reasons, which I won't go into now, sort of buy into the, uh, the whole framework of uh, um, uh, traditional Buddhism in this respect. We don't see those mantras that we have received and that do live amongst us in those terms. But the essence of it, which is, I think, why Sangharakshita made that his last paper, the essence of the, the power of those mantras is alive. And uh, not just what of the mantras, but what those mantras represent. The main thing I got from my contact with Sangharakshita uh, is completely beyond words. Uh, it's something that at times I've groped to talk about. Uh, but it's an absolutely indubitable indubitable uh, sense of reality, of the Dhamma, as a living uh, uh, reality. Sorry, my words are going to trip over each other but because by necessity. Uh, he was deeply in contact with that and uh, was able to communicate that. Uh, he was able to communicate it um, through his expression of the Dhamma. He was able to communicate it uh, in his communication and often he was able to communicate it in his communication even when he was talking about the nuts and bolts of things something more came through in in one's uh, um, uh, um, presence with him something of uh, that what is ultimate uh, lived in him and he handed on to us in many ways including in the form of these mantras uh, which, of course, every order member receives a mantra in that tradition at, uh, at ordination, in a, accompanied by uh, um, images uh, of, of bodhisattvas and buddhas. And by relating to that image and that through that mantra, mm -hmm. uh, a very profound uh, change takes place within one, which it's extremely hard to justify or, or speak of, because we're talking beyond the level of ordinary, um, rational consciousness. Uh, of course, the context of, of the rational, the context of the of individual effort, the context of the, even the bodhisattva ideal is, is vitally important. But there's something else. Uh, Bhante famously said, uh, there's something about me uh, that is, uh, oh, what was his word, is inexplicable. Uh, there's something about me that is not easy to understand. He sort of pretty much said, I don't understand it either. Mm -hmm. And he said, therefore, there's something about this tree ratna that is inexplicable. There's something that, that can't be caught in words, something uncanny. There's something very, very uncanny about Bhante. Uh, uncanny in the sense you can't know it. Um, and 
That, I believe, was this, the Mantrayana teacher, if you like, that he was deeply in contact with that level of reality and he communicated that to us and it's embodied in our community. Many of you not ordained, you may not have encountered this through that form, but it's there. It's there for you and many of you will know it. I, I wasn't uh, present at the puja the other night here, but I, I, I caught its flavour from people talking about it and uh, uh, a flavour of something other, of something more, something greater uh, came through, which is the mantrayana, a touch of the mantrayana that uh, Bhante had embodied in, in uh, it was able to body forth. And uh, as a mantrayana teacher, I think he's faultless. Um, I think that whatever there may be on other levels, and uh, I think there are, I think on that level he's beyond reproach. That it, on that level he, his, his, he, he truly lived, if you see what I mean. That's what he truly was. And uh, that's what he is now. And uh, I'm sure that uh, when he, uh, uh, the, the time is ripe, when the, uh, the circumstances unfold, when whatever ensues upon his own, uh, uh, ensues upon his own death has fulfilled itself, he's had the rest that he clearly feels he needs, uh, that will re-manifest and uh, uh, will continue to, to work for the benefit of the world in the way that it, it, it has done throughout this life. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that it will reconnect in one way or another with this order that he has begun, this movement that he has begun. Uh, we won't try and find him and... Uh, uh, um, sit him in front of his typewriter or something like that. Um, uh, he told he he told me, you know, oh, I'll sort that out for myself. Um, and he more or less said, look, don't go and interfere because you'll ruin it. Um, 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 but uh, I I I think that when we think about Sangharakshita, uh we need to take everything that I've been talking about over these three days into consideration uh, the, uh, the necessity of there being a sort of discrepancy between conditioned uh, uh, being and even conditioned manifestation and transcendental uh, experience and reality. It takes time to make them uh, coextensive. In fact, the Buddhist tradition says that it takes huge lifetimes uh, for that accumulation of merit and wisdom to take place uh, and uh, though you know we must own up to uh, your, all our mistakes in the past we mustn't try to disguise them if we try to disguise them that would make them worse if you see what I mean and if we own up to them it I won't say it makes them all right but it uh, means that they can contribute to uh, something further something higher do you see what I mean? When you, when you own up to your own mistakes, you transcend them. It doesn't mean they go away, but you transcend them. So it's important that we face up to that, face up even perhaps to uh, Sangharakshita's uh, limitations in that respect. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time eviscerating ourselves over it. But uh, it, we just need to honestly say, this happened, that happened. Maybe that wasn't so good, and so on. But... Uh, we need to recognise that this is kind of inevitable. 
uh, and that especially if one is to engage so vigorously and so uh, boldly in transforming and in establishing something so new under such circumstances. And I think to that extent one can see that uh, Sangharachita was uh, a brilliant uh, teacher of the Arahat path, a brilliant setter out of individual path of transformation. Uh, uh, for all his own limitations, he created something that does not, of definition, have limitations. Do you see what I mean? Um, he was, he was a, 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 a remarkable bodhisattva uh, on a, a level that is beyond my imagining. Uh, and able to live out that bodhisattva ideal in a, um, a very full way, uh, again, despite his own, uh, the, 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 the paramitas he still has to work on. Uh, he was a, a, a remarkable bodhisattva who was able to make the spirit of the bodhisattva, the, the bodhicitta, live in the, the movement he created. And uh, he was a remarkable uh, teacher of the mantrayana. He's a remarkable uh, mantrayana guru. He was able to communicate through mantra, and mantra in the larger sense of through word and through presence, he was able to communicate uh, a transcendental reality uh, and communicate it very powerfully and effectively, uh, which is why um, uh, you know, so many of us feel so deeply loyal to him. Uh, so deeply, deeply loyal to him, uh, and why uh, so many people who have never encountered him uh, feel so uh, uh, such extraordinary fortune in having come in, into indirect contact with him. I especially think of that in India. So I hope I've given a sort of framework for you to understand yourself a bit better in some ways against that whole background, and a, a, a framework to understand our movement and its own history. Uh, with all, warts and all, um, and a, a framework to understand uh, um, as a our teacher, uh, for all his um, particularities of character and action and behaviour and so on, and to recognise that, uh, well, uh, you yourself are good enough. Uh, if you're engaging and constantly engaging, you're doing okay. You will have to face your own limitations. You will have to learn more fully who you are. You'll have to come to terms with your own conditioning. And you'll have to integrate your own conditioning into a larger uh, community, which will have to open up to welcome you. It may take time. Um, your, your, the movement and your own teachers within the movement are good enough. In fact, they're pretty good. They've enabled a real Sangha to come into being and to enable the, the wonderful atmosphere there is at the LBC, for instance, which every time I come as president, I, I come, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, lick my finger and, and test the water uh, and see whether, it, what, what its condition is and to, um, you know, do a sort of quality control. And uh, to be frank, it just gets better and better and better that need to improve. I'll have a word with the chair later. Um, but uh, uh, it's, it's certainly good enough. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, our, our teacher, uh, whatever his limitations of character that he said he had, and whatever we may think of uh, uh, some of the things he did, is certainly good enough to get our feet on the path 
to engage us with uh, the spirit that goes beyond us as individuals and to connect us with reality itself. And we're exceptionally fortunate. And may we ourselves, uh, um, you know, put ourselves on these paths, uh, the Arahat path, the path of individual transformation, the Bodhisattva path, the, the path of giving ourselves up, of serving a larger ideal, the largest ideal. And may we, uh, may we connect with the, the ultimate and try to body that forth in, in our own manifestation within space and time. So thank you very much indeed for giving me this chance to unpack what I had 15 minutes to say. I, I think I'm going to have to do a further set of talks to unpack my unpacking. Um, uh, and no doubt ad infinitum. But uh, I'm very grateful to you. I, 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 I've not spared, pulled my punches. So I hope that you'll forgive me for any, uh, um, any lack of smoothness, if you see what I mean. And it, it's a privilege to me to have, well, not a privilege, that's not the right word, but an enormous opportunity for me to have people willing to listen to my unpacking of my reflections on what my understanding. Because unless I do that, I don't understand. So thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.